I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Jill Hennessy has written a book called Respect. Jill is Victoria's member for Altona and also former Attorney General and former Minister for Health and has been a key player in some major social reforms and the associated debate in this state. In this podcast, we talk about respect, its place in our interactions and the costs to us all where respect is absent. Jill gives an insider's view of politics and makes the case for respect to be maintained in our community at all levels. There's no silver bullet in rebuilding respect, but Jill does land on some simple, essential ingredients. Jill Hennessy, great to see you. Welcome. Thank you. Great to see you. Now, you've written a book called Respect that's part of the International Interest Series for Monash University, and we're going to spend a bit of time talking about that. But before we do, you've had a storied career as a parliamentarian. Can you just tell us a bit about why you decided on that calling? I reckon that how we grow up and what our stories are are usually pretty influential about where we land. And I grew up in an area that had a significant degree of economic disadvantage. Many of my local neighbours, they had stories of migration to this country. Some had come from Vietnam and South America. Some had come from other European countries. But I was really struck by the struggle of many of those families and the struggle of my own in terms of, I would have described this as a working poor family in lots of ways. But I think around the ages of 14 or 15, I started to kind of realise the significant difference in the opportunities of the people from the families that I knew and my own would get versus those that came from economically privileged families. I became pretty enraptured with the story of Gough Whitlam, having come to understand that things like access to healthcare and free university education, they wouldn't be available to families like mine unless someone had gone and done heavy lifting in the political arenas and made the case for reform. And I became quite politicised about those issues. Healthcare was also pretty important, both growing up. My mum got multiple sclerosis when I was about three months old. And so I I grew up living the life really as a part carer, as did many other people who supported our families. And so understanding the reality of people's lives and how bereft sometimes the support and opportunities were really got me a bit politicised. And that continued on. I got involved with the Labor Party. I worked part-time for some politicians when I was at university. I then went on to work as an equal opportunity and human rights and administrative lawyer and continued to kind of get involved with the political task. At that stage, it was about trying to knock off Jeff Kennett and get Steve Brax elected, which we were successful at doing. And having lived in the Western suburbs then, I was very involved with a lot of the service gaps. We had, again, big refugee communities moving into the West, a big industrial history, workers getting injured. We didn't have any cancer services in the West at that particular point in time. And I got involved both through the community health services and Western Health around trying to advocate to get better health services into the West. And ultimately, Lynn Kosky, who was the then public transport minister, decided to step down. 
and a few people, including our current Premier, said you should stick your hand up. I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at the time. My mum had MS. My dad had had head and neck cancer at the time. It couldn't have been more difficult and challenging time in our lives. My husband was about to head off to Harvard to study. So we said, why not? Let's bring a bit more pressure to our family circumstances. And I ran and I sat on the back bench for about eight months until John Brumby, who was the Premier at the time, lost. And we had four years in opposition and I was lucky enough to be elevated to the shadow cabinet. We then won government and I became the health minister for four years and then subsequently the attorney general for two years. And I'm still in parliament, although it's pretty difficult in these times of corona. But that's the kind of potted history, Steve. You're in parliament, but you're doing it remotely at times, Jill. Just something you mentioned there, there was that point where you went into parliament by taking the seat of Altona. There was a lot going in your life that might have been a barrier to you. What are the elements that you thought you were able to overcome that might actually ordinarily be barriers for women in all sorts of employment? Look, you know, the Sheryl Sandberg theory of lean in where you can focus on all the reasons why you shouldn't do something, but you should actually focus on the reasons that you should do something. And perhaps I was naive and didn't realise how difficult it would all be trying to juggle all of those things. But really, I thought this is the moment and the opportunity. And I had been advocating and banging on at the government about better services for the West. And really, it was, well, here's an opportunity to try and get on the inside to advocate for those. And with the support of my family, again, perhaps naively at the time, not realising what we were signing up for, we just thought, well, these opportunities don't come by every day and you've got to stick your hand up sometimes. I think there is this issue, particularly for women, that afflicts women, is that you always feel that perhaps you're not going to be good enough, that you don't have the skills. The imposter syndrome is something that's been written about, that it impacts upon the participation of women And more generally, women are judged on what they have done rather than on what their potential could be. And I think I felt very frustrated about some of those things. So in a way, sometimes you've just got to jump and hope that it all works out and have confidence in the ability that you'll make it work and that you have as much right to make a contribution as everybody else and you'd fix all of the other problems. Now, life is messy, but life was pretty hard too before I went into Parliament when you're juggling kids at home. You know, there were days that go to the supermarket and people would say, oh, you know, value every day, it all goes so quick, and I'd want to say, this is not going quick enough. (laughs) And now... As my children grow, I feel like the time is running through my fingers and I really hanker back for those times. So really, I had a short period of time to make a decision. If I had have reflected too deeply, I could have come up with all of these reasons to say no. But ultimately, it was a bit of a, oh, well, why not? And you've got to be in it to win it. Well, thanks for not talking yourself out of it, Jill. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. Um, (laughs) Now, one of the reasons we were going to talk today is because you've written a book called Respect as part of the In the National Interest series by Monash University Publishing. Can you start by telling us about that series and how you got to be involved? I did. In the National Interest is a fantastic initiative by Monash University, and it is about going to those that have had experience in leadership, in politics, in research and academia. And Margaret Gardner, who's the Vice-Chancellor, ably supported by so many wonderful people, really wanted to have some 
literature and some contribution to discussion and debate that wasn't too academically inaccessible. And she wanted to bring some voices whereby you could talk about important issues of our time, about leadership, about how we do politics differently, about women, about transparency and accountability, all of these issues. And really, how do we stop mouse wheeling on the debates and the discussions about these? How do we actually land some progress on those? And to try and really get some provocative conversations going around some of these issues, they decided to start these series. And I was very lucky to be approached by Louise Adler, who is a very pushy person. And for a long time, she had been haranguing me about writing a book and you should write a book about this, or you should write a book about your childhood, you should write a cookbook. And she's a publisher and that's what publishers do. And I would say, oh no. And it was just at a weak moment in time after I'd had a chance to have a break at the end of January this year, where she said, you should write about respect. And that coincided with my frustration at the time. We were just starting to see the Brittany Higgins issue hit the media. There had been the response to the Collingwood Football Club allegations of systemic racism. There was just case after case where I felt so frustrated by so many things about the way in which we talked about hard things and the way in which politics kind of tried to manage those and then move on. And of course, the Women's March, you know, trying to translate the anger that I felt about so many issues into some reflection and thoughtfulness. And so I thought it would be a therapeutic opportunity for me to write that book. It's not easy to pump out 18,000 words about issues that you care about quickly. But ultimately, I decided that that was the contribution that I wanted to make. And I'm very pleased that I did. And it was a great read, Jill. And I've got to say, a couple of hours investment in reading it, I found to be really a worthwhile thing to do. The thing it reminded me of too was, it's back to the point that you mentioned earlier that in your parliamentary career, you've not just warmed the seat, you've prosecuted issues that are significant. Now, some of those issues, as you mentioned in the book, have really led to some, let's just call it quite disrespectful responses. Can you talk a bit about some of those examples? When you go into politics, you've kind of got this threshold question to answer. And I think the hardest question people need to ask themselves when they go into politics is what price are you prepared to pay for power? And that's both a collective and institutional question, i.e. how much are you prepared to compromise to win and to win government? But as an individual, I think you've got to ask yourselves those questions of what are you there to do? Are you prepared to take risk? Are you there to try and manage a long political career and to stay there and therefore you take a managerialist approach to your political contribution? Or are you there to try and fundamentally change things? And I chose the latter path and that comes with consequences. That means you've got to spend political capital. It means you've got to be prepared to step up into some pretty awkward circumstances. That means you've got to be prepared to argue your case. But what I perhaps had underestimated was that it means that you've also got to be prepared to cop a lot of resistance. And whilst I was prepared for that at a kind of academic level or a political level, what I had underestimated was the dark underbelly of politics. 
things like the anti-vaccination movement that I went head-to-head with on a number of reforms around mandatory vaccination in childcare centres and a range of other areas, defending Gattisil to prevent people from HPV, getting meningococcal kind of more widely distributed across the state for young people when we're having people dying of preventable illnesses and diseases. And I decided that I would take them head on and I knew that I would be attacked But I didn't understand that those attacks would be so relentless, so personal, that my family would be the subject of threats and all sorts of other awful things that resulted in police intervention many times and all sorts of other awful things. And so what struck me was how do you maintain the passion and the fervour of your argument without it necessarily unleashing the sorts of responses that I experienced. Now, there's no way the anti-vaccination movement was going to persuade me that vaccines were bad or that vaccines caused the government to be able to look through the electricity points at your house or or all of the other what I would call claptrap that they propagate in their misinformation. But what struck me was some of the viciousness that occurs. And now I'm a politician, I'm used to the rough and tumble in a sense, but when you see other people who call out behaviour, whether that's racism or sexism or poor conduct, and you see the stacks on that they are subjected to online, when you see the kind of attacks that they get subjected to, one of the things that it caused in me, I suppose, is the need for us to try and reflect about how do we have debates and discussions with people that we disagree with and perhaps people that we're never going to persuade, but how do we get a centre of gravity that is civil and decent to each other back into some of these discussions and debates? And that's a complicated question and there's no silver bullet arguments, but I do think we need to try and build a political business case for a more civil politic for a couple of reasons. It is so alienating to the general public and people that are interested to see people just constantly screaming at each other. We don't educate, inform, we don't build better and deeper human empathy when we alienate people from discussions and debates. I've got a very strong interest in trying to improve diversity in public life. That's politics, but people who work in the public service, people who volunteer, people who provide expertise through all of the wonderful kind of advisory groups and boards that government rely upon, getting people to put their hand up to share their expertise when we've got so many hard questions that we need to better answer from climate change to reducing inequality to how we're going to manage in a post-COVID world and what's that going to look like. Why would those people put their hand up to come and participate if we just let people constantly tear them down, whether that's individuals on social media who try and sully their professional reputations, or whether that's a particular viewpoint that a particular media outlet takes a different point of view to, who then go after them. We really don't incentivize bringing diverse, informed expertise to many of these debates. You see that around some of the clinicians in the context of COVID. We've seen that around many of the scientists in the context of climate change adaptation. And we see that for people, for anyone who says, I have been a victim and here is my story and here is what I think needs to change. This issue of gaslighting, and I'm usually not a fan of using terms that are de jour or of the moment. I like plain speaking, but this issue of 
really trying to cast doubt over the capability or the credibility or the health and well-being of people as a way to diminish their contribution is something that I think has disastrous consequences for us all. And so thinking through how do we call that out, how do we reduce it, accepting that it's difficult to eliminate, and how do we incentivize people of all different political colours, for example, to kind of agree that we will push extremism and indecent behaviour to where it belongs, and that is to be outliers, not as part of the mainstream. Jill, you've talked about the recognition that the political process is a contest of ideas and there is always going to be a bit of rough and tumble and argy-bargy. But at the same time, it does seem like our sort of institutions, the media, whilst we say we want people who work across the aisle, the incentive at the moment is to not. Where does that incentive lie? I think there are glimmers of hope and where I see the glimmers of hope is through things like parliamentary committee processes. It's almost like it's when no one's watching that that work gets done and that's part of the theatre of politics. Cameras come in only for question time on parliament days, for example, and People are obviously keen to get their grab up on the nightly news and there is a performative art to question time that sometimes rivals kabuki theatre in its authenticity, but it is about trying to get people's attention. And part of that is one of the great dilemmas of how do you communicate information to people? How do you make a case about issues when the platforms from which people get their information are so diverse now that media is so centrally a form of entertainment now as opposed to information and education and that there is such diversification amongst generations about where they get info. So it is really hard as politics and politicians work out and we're in a process of significant transition, I think, how and what is the best place to try and win hearts and minds, to persuade, to influence, to lead, to get people to think about things. And that is now not a monolithic approach. That means politics has to be done really differently. Alongside that, though, however, there are parliamentary committees that are working each and every single day with people of very diverse politics, considering really challenging, tricky, contested issues. And more often than not, they will come back to the parliament with a parliamentary committee report where they have worked through all of the different debates and dilemmas, all of the different political views, and landed on a set of recommendations that sets out change that makes it, and I can tell you as a former cabinet minister, when you know that you have the certainty of being able to get something through an upper house, your ability to get that through the cabinet, to get that through the caucus, to be able to make a persuasive case to the public is a lot easier. So some examples of that, the Social and Legal Issues Committee, for example, have just handed down a report on racial and religious vilification. And whilst the headlines have all been about banning Nazi symbols, some of the really important work in there is actually about acknowledging the level of racism and sexism and homophobia on digital platforms needs to be re-regulated. If we want to say racial vilification is a criminal offence, then we need to 
train police about how they investigate and prosecute those things. And then we do need to investigate and prosecute them. And to kind of get unanimity amongst a very diverse group of people on those things, that then augurs really well for law reform and for change. Similarly, in assisted dying that I had the great honour of leading, there was some diverse political views on a report and there was a minority report in that case. But where you can try and get people together where they are in a committee environment and they're not performing for the media, where they're the recipients of expert advice, where they spend time together as human beings, where there's nothing to be lost by asking questions or revealing vulnerability, where you can talk through all of the different upside and downsides and the politics of particular issues and then land on a unanimous set of recommendations. They're really fantastic sources of reform. The question is, how do you get that kind of model to contaminate broader institutional politics with all of the challenges around media who love a fight? And that's more difficult. And so you need to be able to do all things. Ultimately, the business of being a politician is about trying to win government. And so it's not all going to be kumbaya agreement. But on the way through, you can still be, in my argument, and this is something that I sketch out in respect, is that you can still be persuasive and politically effective without damaging the institutions that you're part of, without dehumanising your opponents. And if you're not capable of doing that, then I think that puts some serious questions over your capacity as a leader. And ultimately, I would like to think we're able to build a policy where they say, actually, we want leaders who are honest and authentic about difficult problems with difficult solutions and who don't behave like three-year-olds because that's what gets us attention. You told some lovely stories in the Respect book about some of those moments in committees where people have brought their humanity to the table, even with diverse views. Yes. Assisted dying, one of the great joys of doing that, even for people that were very vehemently opposed to the reform, but I have the great honour of talking and trying to persuade each and every single parliamentarian, there is nothing more universal than death. Every politician has had an experience of death. And in reflecting upon their experiences, people really shared stories of great pain. And I learned lots of things. We are all so deeply affected by the loss of people that we love, that our experiences of death are indelible. And I would have very emotional engagements with some of my greatest political opponents in the Victorian parliament, as they would share with me their experiences and the pain of a death of a parent from, Mm. you know, 30 years ago, or the pain of the death of a child, or concerns around their own mortality, as well as some of the really philosophical debates that you would have about the differences between pain and suffering and what did that mean. And in the course of doing that, it just meant that people shared a great deal of their vulnerability and with the security of knowing that it wouldn't be exploited. And I just think the parliament was so much better for people bringing their hearts as much as their heads and their egos to the parliament in the course of that debate and discussion. And having to hear and listen to people who were, in many cases, just weeks away from dying and to really have to reflect upon 
the dual responsibilities of your own conscience and what your representative obligations might be, the role of your own attitudes towards all of these things. It was both torturous and beautiful, but ultimately it was one of those things that you go through a debate like that. It made it a little more uncomfortable to come back next week and to say the most awful things to each other after you had literally both cried together in the parliamentary chamber about matters of great deep personal pain and matters of great dilemma about future policy regulation. Making sure that politicians are not able to dehumanise each other, I think, is really important, but also in the broader project of building a more humane body politic, I've got a strong interest in making sure they're not able to dehumanise the other, whether that's people that are refugees, whether that's women that are victims of sexual and family violence, whether that's the voices of children that are not often very prominent in many of the debates that we have. So how is it that we start to try and make sure that we remember the humanity behind issues? And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're soft or politically ineffective or not a great political tactician. You're able to do all of those things is my contention. But it does mean sometimes you've got to reflect and appeal to your better self in how you respond in political contest. In these moments where it's really emotive, where our values are being challenged, that sort of self-reflection can be challenging. I was quite stunned, I've got to say, when I got to the ending of Respect, and I'm sorry for any spoilers, but that you landed on that thinking that often in workshops I use the book The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Anthony Lencioni, and he starts with vulnerability. Well, really, we're all pretty scared. My dearly departed father used to say that I worked as a lawyer and then I went into politics and he used to say to people that he can't wait until I become a used car salesperson in terms of taking up occupations that were not necessarily revered by people in the general public. And uh, so I suppose their jokes. I share that, I share that to, to, to make the point that um, particularly in professions where there is a lot of bravado, where there is a lot of faux rage and acting, one should never underestimate the level of fear and vulnerability that sits behind all of those things. As we try to challenge assumptions about what leadership looks like and what leaders look like, those of us that are particularly interested in increasing the diversity of voices in public institutions and public debates, you know, it's so important that we continue to challenge those things. That actually, in a time of great busyness in a time where people feel that the best way to communicate fear is through rage, that sometimes circuit breaking that through vulnerability, it's powerful not just in the moment, it's really powerful in showing that you can do that and be the Premier of a state. You can do that and be a Minister of the Crown. You can do that and be a judge. You know, watching when judges are delivering judgments where they're heartbroken about what has had to occur. And again, they have to sit there in a wig and a gown, impartially, hearing the worst of what human beings can do to each other. It's in those moments that you also send a message to the public that we are all human and that our vulnerability is not something to hide. Our vulnerability is, something, is, an, is essentially part of the human condition and makes you a better leader because you understand human beings, you understand 
how to build effective teams. You understand how do we make communities more cohesive and tolerant and how do we bring out the best in each other rather than the worst in each other? Because it's really easy to bring out the worst in people. It's really easy to make people feel scared and fear is one of the most powerful political tools that you can use. You can win elections very, very easily. It's much harder to win elections with a positive program as well. And in times when people don't know what the future is going to look like, we can encourage people to turn on each other and to kick down rather than to look up who's got power and resources and ask questions of them. And I think leaders that are able to show vulnerability can help circuit break some of those excesses that can occur in uncertain times. And I think you can be politically rewarded for that. You can get people to come along with you. There is something to be gained by taking those risks. Joe, one last question. There's a trend that's emerged over the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years for governments to campaign on the basis that they will undo what's been done by the government before, which seems to be a bit of a self-defeating exercise. What are the dynamics or the characteristics that you would say that electors should be looking for in terms of bringing a humanity and bringing a policy ambition in a way that will be lasting and not just fodder for the ongoing debate? It is that old cliche of look for leaders that are prepared to plant the seed of an oak tree that will grow long after they'll have any political interest in it. And whether that is infrastructure or social policy reform or areas that are very close to my heart, the reduction of economic inequalities, how do we have an economically prosperous community where those benefits are shared amongst all? Those are not electoral cycle projects. Those are long-term projects. And to kind of conclude where I started, the great leaders of our time are the people like Gough Whitlam who got people like me university educated, and I got to go on and become an attorney general. Now, without those reforms, without someone who took the risks and perhaps paid the political price around the costs that those policy reforms costed, we wouldn't have those changes. Generations were changed through those sorts of decisions. And if you are looking for something that is a leader that will deliver those changes, ultimately look for people that are committing themselves in a credible way to projects that will change the world long after they'll be dead and buried. And those are the leaders that we need of our time. You know, the thing that breaks my heart the most, and I I love going and talking to younger people, but one of the things that they say to me is this anger and this rage that they have at our current crop about climate change and about our failure to act. We've mucked around for too long, that we've debated around what the financial model of transition and climate change adaptation should be. Sure, they are hard questions and they're questions with consequences for real people and real communities who rely on some of those jobs in those carbon-heavy industries. But to have a generation look up at you and to kind of consider whether or not it's worthwhile being involved or invested in the projects of public change because we've somehow stuffed it up by our failure to act quickly enough I think that is a real condemnation on my era and those before me. I still think we've got time to respond in a far more optimistic way. But our obligation to the next generation is something that we should see when we look in the mirror each and every single day. And if you have politicians that are not prepared to bring that kind of commitment 
and that kind of level of political self-disinterest into answering the hard questions that need to be answered, then don't vote for them. Everyone wants something. We were all kind of inherently selfish and want our own needs met, whether that's what's happening at the park across the road or the street or what's happening around our superannuation or our local road or our local school and our job opportunities. All of those are really important, but we are here for a nanosecond of time. And we've also got a broader moral obligation, in my view, about what it is that we leave behind. And we we should demand and expect better responses and accountability from our modern leaders around some of those issues in the same way that we demand and expect it around what happens on our street, what happens on our public transport system. So that, I think, is my great, grand, I hope not too idealistic hope about the sorts of generational change that is occurring around what the political voters will expect of us. And I just think we've got an obligation to not fail them. Jill, there's a fabulous line in the musical Hamilton about planting seeds in a garden that you never get to see. It's been a joy talking today. Thank Thank you so much. Cheers. Take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, Make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you liked the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.